welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Uh, my name is Mike. If we haven't met, I'm the lead pastor here at Awaken. We're in a series called Lost in Translation. So I want to invite you to turn to the book of Revelation um, as you do. Has anybody been tubing lately? In tubing, like on a lake before? I just say if you're over 18, it's not a good idea anymore. So just forget about it. I went yesterday and my neck is just killing me. Um, I, I came home or I woke up this morning and I thought to myself, my, my mind doesn't re- realize like how old my body actually is. You ever had that moment before? Gosh, that's just so depressing. So depressing, you know? Not Superman anymore, or never was, but at least now I know I'm not, so. Um, All right, friends, let's do this. This is a difficult passage that we're talking about today. It's Revelation 7 and 14. Um, Two passages that dive into two very, I think, tricky topics, quite frankly. Um, if you weren't here last week, we, we started a little mini-series on Revelation within Lost in Translation. And so last week we talked about chapter 5 and this idea, this picture of the throne room where uh, there is a, uh, a lamb, a little slain lamb who's the only one that's worthy to open the scroll that is in the hand of the one who's on the throne. The idea being that God is on the throne and there is this scroll, the secret of God's power and authority. And the question of, that we looked at last week of like, what does it look like when God's power is on display? And the Lamb is the only one who has the character that's consistent with the way in which God rules and reigns, which is sacrificial love on the cross, to open that scroll, okay? A lot, lot to cover. I just did it in like four minutes, or 30 seconds from last week. So that was last week. And what we saw was there's, a, there's an image or uh, an imagination that the Jewish people of Jesus' day would have had, and that was... What would God look like when God came back to Israel and restored Israel and sort of kicked out the Romans and Israel ruled the world again like it was supposed to? Or at least it was at the center of the world as it was supposed to be. And so there was this image, there was this imagination that the people had and that it would look a certain way. And many thought that God would come back in sort of a military fashion and kick out the Romans. And if by sword necessary, fine, that's how it would be. And what we see is John transforms that image and totally changes it and says, no, actually, the way in which God rules and, and his power is on display is through sacrificial love. And so that's um, a bit of background for what we're going to do this morning and these two questions of how does God fight? When God fights or engages evil and injustice in the world, what does it look like is one, one, one idea in chapter 7. And then what does God's judgment look like? Um, If you've ever uh, thought about that, those are two big ideas. So that's what I want to look at this morning. Um, I begin with a couple of convictions. One is that this is an apocalyptic letter. So it's the genre that that Revelation is, is it's apocalypse. It's an ancient Jewish tradition that was very symbolic, lots of pictures, lots of uh, images, and not to be taken literally, right? I don't think Jesus will have a sword coming out of his mouth, ever, period, Um, I think that that's an image about something, about the way in which the truth of what Jesus says convicts, right? It turns on the lights. It sort of pierces through the muck and the mire. Uh, It's it's apocalypse, so there's lots of symbols and metaphors, of which there are many in today's passage. And then also, it's a letter. It was written to people who were trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in and among an empire that opposed the ways of God. You know, we have no idea what that's like in our day and age, right? (laughs) Hello, everybody. Of course we do. Of course we do. There's all kinds of ways in which our politics oppose the ways of God. So, how do we read that? It's an apocalypse and it's letter. Um, It's not meant to be interpreted literally. 
Many people argue that Revelation, in Revelation you find a, a very bloody and a very violent image of who and what God is. And so today I want to try to argue that that's actually not the case. That what we see in the way in which John talks about how God fights and engages and the way in which God judges is actually needs no bloodshed whatsoever. So that's what I hope to do. Uh, if you can, stand and we will read two different passages, one from 7 and one from 14. We'll read starting in verse 4. In chapter 7, it says this, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. And you get the picture, tribe of Gad, 12,000. Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulon, Joseph, and Benjamin. The 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each. Verse 9, After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every tribe and nation... Uh, people in language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, and he, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Skip to chapter 14, starting in verse 14. One of the most gruesome passages in the book of Revelation. Here we go. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud. And seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who's sitting on the cloud. Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was on the, seated on the, on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and harvested, or the earth was harvested. Another angel came out from the temple in heaven, and, and he too had a sharp sickle. And still another who had charge of the fire came from the altar. They called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sickle, gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung its sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. There they were trampled in the winepress outside of the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Pray with me. God, this morning as we gather on this 4th of July weekend, um, we want to talk about and think about what it means for your kingdom to be the one that we bow a knee to. That we would have no other allegiance. Uh, with, not without saying and, and recognizing people who have gone before us uh, to secure freedoms that we uh, receive today. Even to just be in here in this building without fear. Um, we thank you. Uh, and so God, as we imagine what it looks like to follow you, in this world as people uh, of your church. Would you um, speak to us, Holy Spirit, uh, what we need to hear and challenge us to be the people you've called us to be, I pray. And all God's people said, <clears throat> amen. You may be seated. Do you guys remember your first fist fight? Maybe some of you have never been in a fist fight before, but I'm guessing that some of you have been in a, how about a little raise of hands? If you've been in a fist fight before, raise your hands. Just go ahead and share, raise, raise, raise your hands. Okay, a few of you, all right. Um, I've been in a couple, a couple. I, the first one I remember, um, I remember it quite vividly, actually. I grew up in a house with five boys, and so there were three of us in one bedroom and two of us in another bedroom, and my parents slept in a hide-a-bed in the, in the living room. So bunk bed, bunk bed, trundle bed. You got it? So the trundle bed pulled out from underneath the, the bunk bed. And um, so my, my younger brother, Jake, was at the top bunk, and we had one of those, light, like the old lights, the square lights in the ceiling with the pull switch. You remember those? And so we're, we're getting ready for bed, and uh, I'm in the, the bottom bunk, he's in the top bunk, and the lights go off, and it's ready for bed. So there we are, we're laying there, and on comes the light. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? He's like, I want to read. I'm like, it's bedtime, yo. So I get out, I crawl up the bed over, 
click the light. I'm like, the lights are off. It's time for bed. So I come back down. I lay down on my bed. I put my head on my pillow, and you know exactly what happens. The moment I put my head on the pillow, the light comes on. It's like, crawl back out of bed, up there, to the light. I'm like, last time, lights are off, bro. Go back down. Sure enough, you know, he's like a little mosquito. You know how little brothers can be? Sure enough, as soon as I get in bed, he flips on the light, and I just lost it. Like Popeye, if you remember. I can't stand it no more. And I go up to the top of the bunk, and I turn off the light, and I say, lights are off. And I just deck him right in the gut. Like just punch him right in the stomach. And it was like, it was, a, uh, it, was a, it was a blow. It was a body blow. I think there was an old um, Nintendo, body blow, body blow. You know, the boxing one. Hit him right in the gut, and he like... <sighs> you know when your kid loses their, or when they're crying and they, they can't catch their breath, and you're like, oh my gosh, breathe, breathe, breathe. It was one of those moments. I just smoked him right in the gut. Now... I don't know if, you, if you've ever been in a fist fight before, but it's, um, it's an interesting thing when you push back against something and you use violence to do so. It's a very natural response for us, for many of us, and yet it feel, when, when, it, when it happens, at least for me, when it happened and when it's happened, there's like a sick feeling to my stomach, like something about this isn't right. When you push back against something, is violence the next, is the next best answer? And this question we want to first explore is what does it look like when God fights? What does it look like when God pushes back against evil and injustice in the world? And many would argue that it looks like violence, and it looks like God's going to come back with, with, with authority and power and, and violence, if necessary, to make the world right. And I want to argue that that is exactly the opposite of what John is presenting and exactly the opposite of what we know to be true about God in Jesus. How do I get there? Chapter 7, we read about these 12,000 who were numbered, or these 144,000, and I want to offer this idea, and when you're reading the book of Revelation, one of the keys that helps is this idea of, I heard, and then I saw. Oftentimes, John will hear something, and he actually, last week, he heard something, right? In the throne room, he hears about this lion, this tribe of Judah, that's going to come back and sort of do something. And then it's transformed, that image or that imagination that would have been with the people about how God would come back is transformed and it's changed into this little lamb who was slain. So he hears and then he sees. And what he sees transforms the understanding of what he's heard. And I would suggest the same is happening in this. In chapter 7, John hears something. He hears a roll call. He hears 144,000, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Jacob who are called out, this army that's gathering, and he hears something. And according to, um, if you're wondering, by the way, some people came and asked, like, are there any books you're reading about this one? This one right here. If you want to look at it after, Theology of Revelation, Richard Bauckham. Fabulous. Very good. <clears throat> he says this. In the Old Testament, a census was always a reckoning of the military strength of a nation, in which only males of military age were counted, 12 equal contingents from the 12 tribes of the army of Israel this is, the, this is the imagination, this is the hope, right? Reunited in the last days, according to the traditional hope, mustered under the leadership of the Lion of Judah to defeat the Gentile oppressors of Israel. That's what they were hoping for, right? So when John says, I heard, I heard 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, what we think, what people would have understood is, there's an army that's gathered, right? It's like Lord of the Rings. There's an army that's gathering on the dark side of Mordor or whatever. But... Then what he sees transforms what he hears, right? Because look at what verse 9 says. After this, I looked, and there before me wasn't 144,000, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Jacob. No. What I saw was a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe and every nation. People, language, standing before what? 
the throne and before the lamb, holding guns and ready to go, swords, they probably didn't have guns, swords ready to go into battle. No, actually, they're standing there in white robes, holding palm branches in their hands, worshiping. What John sees transforms what he hears. How does God fight? It doesn't look like 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe, ready to go, ready to fight, ready to follow the commander into the battle with swords drawn and, and guns blazing. No, actually, it looks very different. What's John saying? When God fights back, when God engages injustice and evil in the world, it doesn't look like what we think it looks like. It actually looks quite different. It looks like it's consistent with what we learned about in chapter 5. It looks like this group of people who are ready to go to battle by worshiping, which seems really cheesy and lame, if we can just be honest, right? Like, how are you going to defeat the enemy by worshiping? That sounds so dumb. Like, you're going to sing Hosanna and like they're all going to just go away? No, what John is saying is, there is a group of people who have been faithful all the way to the end. They've already dipped their white robes and they've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. What does that mean? These are the martyrs, right? Who have died and who have participated in the sacrificial death just like the Lamb and who are now not bowing a knee and having allegiance to any other empire or any other king or any other way of doing, doing a battle against evil and injustice, but rather doing it the Lamb's way. They're following the Lamb all the way to the end, even unto death. They've dipped their robes in blood, their own blood. They've died for this faith. And now they're saying, this is how we beat evil and injustice, by worshiping the Lamb, by doing it the Lamb's way. Now, friends, this is a very, very different image, right? These people are not engaged killers ready to go into battle, but rather, when God fights back, when God engages injustice in the world, he doesn't do it with swords and chariots and horses and bullets and bombs and guns. Ironic that it happened to fall on this weekend that I'm preaching this message. No, God does it with sacrificial love. Now, whatever your politics are about how we live in the world... The call of Jesus is towards sacrificial love. It always has been and always will be. So the army of God with which God will use to defeat evil and injustice in the world actually won't be a bloodbath of violence and death, but rather a battle that's already... The only blood that's been shed has already been shed because that battle has already been fought on the cross and in the resurrection and love has won and love will win. Come on now, church. And this is confirmed if you go ahead to chapter 14. We see this group of people again, the 144,000. The transformed 144,000. Not the bullets and bombs and guns and chariots and going into battle 144,000. No, we see a different one. And they're singing a song, a song that only they know, and it's the song of the Lamb, it says, in chapter 14. In between 7 and 14, guess what we get introduced to? Babylon, the beast, the dragon... Uh, the prostitute, all of the things that represent the evil empires and sin and injustice in the world are introduced in the book of Revelation in chapters 8, eight 9, 10, 11, and 12. So what essentially John has done is he's set up in chapter 7. Here's an image of what it looks like for God to engage in battle, and then here's what happens when they do. They follow the Lamb all the way to the end. And if you look at verse, chapter 14, verse 4, it says, These are those who did not defile themselves, for they followed the Lamb wherever he goes. Bacham again says, thus the victory of the Lamb's army is the victory of truthful witness maintained as far as sacrificial death. It depicts the followers as the people of the Messiah who share in his victory by sacrificial death rather than military violence. So what? Big deal. Interesting, Micah. 
Well, maybe you think so. Maybe you don't. Here's what I would say. How does God fight injustice and evil and sin in the world? Because, friends, you, if you've been watching the news or you read the papers, you know that there's plenty of it out there, right? Did anybody read the article about the, the, the Kenyans, the three Kenyans who were abducted and they, just, they found them dead in a river? This, so this was an IJM, International Justice Mission, one of their lawyers and a defendant who was testifying against a corrupt police force. The taxi cab driver and those two were abducted and they just found them dead in a river. IJAM is, is an organization we partner with. And I don't know if, if you've seen evil face to face. For many of us, we haven't. We've been afforded a life where we don't, we don't even know the shape of it or the, the color of it or, 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 or what it looks like and feels like. But there are people in the world, friends, who know it so well, who have gone all the way unto death and so the question of how does, is that it? Does it evil win in the end? Is that the story? Or does somehow God bring, put the world back to rights? Which is, I think is a question that we all ask in some way, shape, or form. And the story of the scripture says, yes, God does have an answer to that, but it doesn't look like what you think it looks like. It doesn't look like retributive violence. It doesn't look like the myth of redemptive violence where you answer violence with violence because, friends, that's a zero-sum game. Nothing is ever generated from that. Only death comes. The only way things get redeemed, the only way things get generated is by sacrificial love because it's generative. It creates something. Whereas evil and selfishness only in the end focuses on me, and I would argue, I'll get to this at the end, it self-implodes. How does God fight back? with sacrificial love all the way to the end. And this is what I want you to hear this morning. This is what I think the book of Revelation in this chapter and and this idea is really getting at. Be encouraged what looks like death and what looks like a win for sin and evil and destruction in the world is actually like the payment. It's it's the insurance that what happened on the cross and what happens in the resurrection will happen to you and me who follow Jesus. So death Scripture says to us, death does not win. It is not the end of the game. It's not the end of the story. So what looks like death when somebody dies in the name of Jesus, like some horrible thing happens and people get abducted and killed in the name of Jesus, we who follow the lamb, though it hurts and though we may grieve and though we may try to grieve, but we have no idea even how to grieve because we don't even know that depth of violence and pain, we try to enter into it and we have to remind ourselves and say this morning, be encouraged Do not lose hope that there is something that happened on the cross and in the resurrection that ensures a different kind of outcome than death and evil winning in the end. So follow all the way unto death. Be faithful. Follow the lamb wherever he goes, Revelation 14 says. That's what they did. And so maybe you're here this morning and you you are in the midst of some struggle or some suffering or, or, or you know people who are, or you're connected to people who are. And, and, as, and as easy as it might be for me to say it, because I'm alive, and so are you, I cannot pass this passage up, and I cannot teach the Bible and not say, the hope of the gospel is that death does not win in the end, and that the cross and the resurrection of Jesus ensure something for those who follow and who are following the lamb wherever he goes, that it's actually our victory. The cross meant to kill is my victory, right? 
And Satan, or- this is the crazy part, the paradox of the cross. Satan and evil orchestrate what happens on the cross. Satan and evil essentially seal their own fate by orchestrating what happens on the cross, which is tapping into this next question of how does God execute judgment? How does God execute judgment in Revelation? Have you guys ever seen the bullhorn guy? You know this guy? You may not know his face or his name, but you've probably seen him before. He's usually outside of a a, a sporting event, right, with a bullhorn, and he's screaming at the top of his lungs. And you know the message, right? Like, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell. Your sins are condemned. You, right, turn or burn is the message. This is, God's ex- this is God's executing God's judgment. And if you're not ready for it, oh, snaps, you are in T-Rubble with a capital Barney. Barney Rubble? Thank you. Bullhorn guy. Is that, is that what it looks like when God's coming back? Like, is God pissed and he's taking names? Is that how it's going to happen? Or is there something else that John's saying here? I want to submit that actually God's judgment looks maybe a little different. This, is, this may be a new idea for some of us. I want to encourage you just to think about it, take it in, don't, don't uh, dismiss it out of hand, but see, see, see if you can see what I'm seeing here. This p- conversation that we read in chapter 14, this wine press of God's wrath, right? There's a guy, he's the son of man, arguably Jesus in this, in this image. He's encouraged by an angel to go out into the earth and to take the sharp sickle and harvest the grapes of the earth, right? And he brings them back, and then they're put into the wine press of God's wrath, it says, and they're stomped or they're crushed, and out of which flows blood as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. By the way, some people have done the math. That's like here to Fargo. That's a lot of blood. I mean, that's a lot of people, if that's, how, if that's supposed to be literal, or something else happening here. Of course, you think, I think something else is happening here. A couple of keys that are helpful, all right? Follow me, follow me. In the Old Testament, the people or the, the vineyard is always God's people. Always in the Old Testament, in Psalms, in the, in the prophets, even Jesus when he talks about the vineyard, it's, it's usually in reference to God's people. So I would submit that the, the, ra- the grapes are, are God's people, and the vineyard is, is the, the collective people of God, right? So then, in this, um, the grapes, if you'll notice in the passage, the grapes are not deserving of judgment. They've done nothing bad. They're not like wicked grapes that need to be taken off the earth. No, it just says that they're ripe. Like, the time has come. One, one could argue that that's how you would interpret it. It's not that they're, they, don't des- they don't deserve to be crushed. They're not waiting. They're not bad. They're not in the corner with a dunce cap. No, they're just, they're just ripe. The time has come, right? So gather up the grapes. The, their time has come. And then it says that they're crushed. Now, here's the, here's the key. If you miss this, I think you misinterpret the passage. Always in the, in the scriptures, drinking equals judgment, not crushing, Something is crushed or something is, is smashed and there's a fragrant aroma, the scripture says sometimes. The crushing is not, is not the bad thing. That's not the judgment. Drinking something is often connected to something being judged in the scriptures. So a number of times in the Old Testament, someone drinks something and they're drinking judgment upon themselves. Or because of their sin, they're offered this drink, which is judgment upon themselves, usually either wine or blood. In the book of Revelation, this theme is consistent, Right? Uh, in chapter 17 and 18, we get this a number of times. This woman, this prostitute that, it's, that it talks about, says, 17.6, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people. You can drink as much blood as you want, but I don't think you're going to get drunk. You might get sick, but you're not going to get drunk. What's going on here? She's drinking judgment upon herself. All right? 
Verse 18.3 says, all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. There are nations and people who have, are, in, are, are in collusion with this idea or this, this, this woman, this prostitute, this empire. 18.6, give her back a double portion from her own cup. Uh, 16.6, they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. So drinking the blood or drinking the wine is the judgment, not the crushing. So what's going on here? I want to submit that sin and evil, or the judgment for sin and evil, is inherent in the action itself. What do I mean by that? If you turn to Psalm chapter 7, there's a passage that really fleshes this out. Psalm chapter 7. Listen really carefully. Here's what it says. Whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. The trouble they cause recoils on them and their violence comes down on their own heads. Scriptures all through teach this idea you live by the sword, you die by the sword. You reap what you sow. You, you, you. The blood you have shed is the blood that will be, you will be judged with and by. Here's what I'm saying. Sin and evil is inherently self-destructive, and in the end, when it runs its full course, it collapses on itself. Is it possible in this passage that the grapes that are being crushed are not crushed because they deserve to be crushed, but because they've been martyred? They have been faithful all the way to the end, and sin and evil in whatever form it took has, has ended their life, and their blood is, has flown. The judgment comes in those who drink it, and those who drink it are those who perpetuated the violence against them. So in Revelation, at the end, who, who ends up doing all the drinking? It's the prostitute, it's Babylon, it's the empire, it's the dragon, it's, it's the Satan, it's all of the people who have perpetuated the violence who end up being judged by the blood that they've shed. See what's, see what's happening here. The fury is God's fury, absolutely, for the injustice that's happened, for sure. But in the end, there will be no shortage of blood to drink by those who have perpetuated the violence. That is, do them. This is the paradox of the cross I talked about earlier. Sin and Satan set up this, the cross. They orchestrate the whole thing in order to deliver this fatal blow, right? And what happens? It backfires, in Jesus' death and resurrection, it's actually the defeat and the victory against evil and sin. Come on! That's the whole deal. So may I submit the possibility that God's judgment is merely the removal of God's protective hand of mercy so that sin and evil runs its full course, which leads to death always and every time. When sin and evil run its full course, it always leads to death. I would argue that it cannibalizes itself because it's the heart turned in on itself, right? This is Luther. So can I, the possibility that God's judgment isn't God lifting a finger and saying these things and striking these people down, but just removing God's protective hand of mercy, which I would submit to you is holding back a whole lot of things that we deserve that we don't actually get, right? So God's protective hand of mercy is removed so that sin and evil runs its full course and destroys itself. It's as if Jesus, God is saying, in Jesus, I have offered, in effect, I have suffered the effect of your sin, which, in it, which is death, when it runs its full course, so that you don't have to. So stay under my protection. Trust my work that I've done for you, but if you don't, you drink 
your own judgment. The merciful and protective hand of God is withdrawn, and sin and evil is allowed to run its full course. We drink our own judgment. So in Revelation 14, the grapes are crushed. Absolutely. The lives of people who followed the lamb all the way to the end are taken, and the blood, their blood flows. But it's not God doing the crushing, and it's not God doing the killing, but rather sin and evil. And in the end, it comes back around, and sin and evil drink their own judgment, and in the end, destroy itself. And God never lifts a finger in violence. What does it mean to say that God, in fighting back and in fighting sin and evil and injustice in the world, does so in a way that looks consistent with the Lamb and looks consistent with Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross? Do we work for injustice and, and to bring justice in places where it's not? Absolutely. Do we stand with those who are marginalized and who don't have a voice and who are oppressed as Christians? Absolutely we do those things. But we do so in a lamb-like way. We don't do it with bullets, bombs, and guns, with swords and empires. We do it with the self-sacrificial love that leads sometimes all the way to death because we know and because we trust that his victory is our victory. Come on! I don't know about you guys, but there are a, there, there's a number of different ways you could live in this world. And you can fight back in all kinds of different ways. And people do. And they do it with violence, and they believe the myth of retributive violence, that violence is to be dealt with with more violence. That's the answer. And I would just submit to you that the cross says, no, it's not. It says once and for all, one sacrifice to end all, one act of violence perpetrated upon me, only my blood is shed, God says, so that you don't have to keep doing this. So people of the cross... People of the book, people of the church of Jesus Christ, there is a way forward that he is calling us to. And I have to remind you this morning that it is a way of nonviolence. It is a way of sacrificial love for the sake of our enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. That's what Jesus says. And I submit to you that that's the same Jesus that John presents in the book of Revelation. You just have to have eyes to see it. Either I'm crazy, I'm wrong, or I'm onto something here. And I think... Well, we all do, right? If we, th if we thought our opinions were wrong, we'd go get a different one. So there's mine. Do you want to pray? All right. Let's pray. God, as we think about what it means to follow you, and we look at a book like this, and we try to make sense of what we see on the cross and what we know about you, because Scriptures say that you are the exact representation of God. Jesus, that you are the icon. What we know of you, we can say we know of God. And what we want to know of God, we need to only look to you. So God, as we try to navigate these points in these difficult places where sometimes it seems like the Jesus that we seem to know in the, in the Gospels doesn't line up with the Jesus of the book of Revelation. God, help us to, to bring those two close together. Holy Spirit, I, I'm doing my best here to offer this group of people you've called me to be faithful to words of life, words to call us towards you and who you've made us to be. So burn away anything that shouldn't, shouldn't stick or shouldn't last. Uh, only let what is of you remain. So God, as we take these moments of silence, would you impress on our hearts whatever one step could be for us to follow the lamb wherever he goes, like the flannel graph. Just 
a group of people committed to this way of being human in the world because we believe that it's actually the way to life. So lead us. Little lamb that was slain, lead us. Show us what it means for our own lives, with our kids, in our workplaces, in our schools. Holy Spirit, speak to us now. Hello, I'm Greg from the prayer team. I've received these words, and if you feel comfortable, open your hands. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Then I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home now is among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of water of life. And all who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Grace and peace. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.